Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most heinous, the most brutal, the most high-profile homicides in modern-day Maryland history in the state of Maryland are examined, they are discussed, and they are profiled. For this season, season six, the focus is on robbery-related murders, or basically murders where the victim was killed simply simply because the killer wanted something that they had. And like I said in the last episode, trust me, the state of Maryland has a lot of these type of homicides, and I only selected 10 of the most horrific, and this is only part one. Part two will come later, eventually, but for right now, season six, I only focused on 10 cases. So with that being said, let's get right on into it and focus on this episode. On this episode, the senseless murder of husband and wife attorneys Jose E. Trias and Julie N. Gilbert will be profiled. And as in each and every episode and every season, there will be an unsolved homicide that needs special attention that will also be profiled on this episode. And for this episode, the unsolved shooting murder of 40-year-old Michelle Anita Erdman will be examined and profiled. Liars. I'm, I, let me just start off. Ooh, I'm telling you right now. This story or episode is about liars. Pathological liars. Liars that's going to lie no matter what. No matter if the truth and the evidence is literally staring right in front of them in the face, they're still going to lie. They're going to lie, lie so much, you literally start to believe your own lies. I mean, maybe you don't want to disappoint the few people that believe in you or whatever, but I cannot, I cannot, for the life of me, I cannot respect a pathological liar. I cannot sympathize with a liar. I cannot relate to them. I mean, I don't get it. Especially if the evidence is staring at you right in front of your face. I can't rock with a liar. In this episode that I'm about to discuss, when this homicide occurred, all this killer could do was just look right into those TV cameras, smile, and lie his pathetic, pathological little ass off and look completely stupid in the process. Scotland Williams at first seemed like he was a dude moving on in the right path in life. After leaving high school... Scotland served 12 years in the United States Army, completing tours in the Persian Gulf. Then things took a detour, and Scotland moved in with his mother in her home in the 800 block of Bradford Avenue in Arnold. From there, Scotland decided that he was going to become a thief or a burglar. He decided that he wasn't going to work for nothing. He decided that the world owed him something because I guess he went to the army and he was just going to take what others had worked for. Scotland specialized in robbing people's homes when they were inside and he became a master at it. Eventually, he did get caught and in March of 1994, Scotland was convicted of burglarizing a home in Severna Park. The homeowners had slept in their bedroom while Scotland had rummaged or went all throughout their house, taking whatever he wanted. Scotland got caught and eventually received 18 months in prison. 
just two months after Scotland got out of prison, the now 31-year-old was back at it, at it again, doing what he do best. I don't, I don't get it. Prison meant nothing. This time, Scotland targeted the home of husband and wife attorneys, 49-year-old Jose Enrique Trias and 48-year-old Julie Noel Gilbert. Jose was the chief counsel and vice president of Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which is the nation's biggest and largest philanthropy. Jose's wife, Julie, was one of the country's top tax attorneys, and she was a partner in the Morgan Lewis and Brockius law firm in Washington, D.C. Julie was also a prominent tax lawyer for various nonprofit organizations where she sometimes did pro bono work. Although both Jose and Julie were from Bethesda and they actually lived there, like they did have a house in Bethesda, Maryland, and they stayed there Monday through Friday. The upper class wealthy couple also had a $725,000 weekend home in the 1600 block of Father's Urban Lane, right on the banks of the Severn River in Arnold. And that's where they spent most of their weekends winding down. On the night of May 14, 1994, Scotland broke into the couple's weekend home. And this time, Scotland had to make sure he left no witnesses. So after ransacking their home, handcuffing them both, and making them lie face down on their bed in their bedroom, Scotland put a gun to the back of their head at close range and pulled the trigger one by one. After killing them both, execution style, Scotland then left with the couple's jewelry and their city bank bank cards. He even started using it, the bank cards, at area ATMs like he ain't know his picture was being snapped every single time he used it. Right on the bank's camera, you can clearly see Scotland still wearing glasses and a blue bandana withdrawing money out of the ATM. Scotland first took money from an ATM in Glen Burnie, then he withdrew money from an ATM in Elkridge. When the couple didn't show up for work two days later, on May 16, 1994, both of their secretaries, they knew that something was wrong, especially when they couldn't get a hold of either one of them. Julie's secretary called a carpenter who had done some work on their home in Arnold and who also had a key to the property. When Julie's secretary asked the carpenter if he could go to the home to make sure everything was all right, the carpenter agreed to go check everything out. When the carpenter got to the couple's home, he saw a strange handwritten note taped on the front door that read, On vacation. Be back 20 May. Did that even make sense? And he noticed that Julie's Acura legend was not in the garage. With his senses on alert, because of the mysterious note, the carpenter used his key and came into the couple's home, and that's where he found their bodies. The detectives immediately labeled the case as a robbery gone wrong and started tracing their couple's credit cards and was able to see who had been using them. The bank sent over a photo of who had been using them, and they splashed the photo all on TV and at area banks' ATMs. 
when Scotland used the ATM card a third time at an ATM at a shopping center in South Baltimore, and the ATM's camera snapped the picture, along with the, uh, the picture of Scotland driving Julie's car, a witness recognized Scotland from his face being all on TV. The detectives traced Scotland back to his mother's house in Arnold, where they showed him the surveillance photo of him using the credit cards. Scotland did admit that, yeah, it was him in the picture. And he admitted that, yeah, he had been, you know, he had used the bank cards to withdraw money, but he ain't know nothing about nobody getting killed. Arrested on May 19, 1994, wearing Julie's watch, when the detectives searched Scotland's mother's home, they found uh, canisters of mace, a crowbar, a blue bandana. They found uh, Jose's gold watch, three small flashlights, two pairs of handcuffs, a pair of binoculars, and $2,160.85 in cash and mostly $20 bills in a brown bag. Arrested and charged with double first-degree murder, two counts of armed robbery, and use of a handgun in committing a felony, Scotland was held without no bail. The brutal murders of the prominent wealthy upper-class attorney couple, it rocked the quiet community in Arnold at the time in 1994, and about 1,500 people and about, I'm sorry, about 500 people attended the private memorial service that was held in the conservatory at the secluded Howard Hughes Medical Institute where Jose was a legal scholar. Jose was also an avid pianist who loved to explain the theory of relativity. Julie had graduated from Harvard Law School and had held off on private practice to work for the Department of Housing and Urban Development where she helped write legislation for low-income housing according to articles for the Baltimore Sun. The couple was married for nine years and they had met while they both represented clients who had been fighting over the appraisal of gemstones that were being exported to the Smithsonian Institute, which sounds weird. But anyway, both Julie and Jose had an intense love of the law, a love of music, a love of art, history, and science. And it seemed like they were meshed together. Even with all of the evidence Scotland was faced with, Scotland still was like, it wasn't me. I ain't do it. It wasn't me. He was like, I was there. I was using the cards. Yeah, but it, it wasn't me. And I ain't killed nobody. During Scotland's trial, his first trial, prosecutors put out evidence like a footprint that matched Scotland's shoe size that was found on the kitchen floor. They put out evidence that fibers from Scotland's brown cotton gloves were found in the couple's home and Scotland's DNA was found in his saliva or spit that was found in a drinking glass. And after a trial that lasted for two weeks, Scotland was found guilty of all charges and the prosecutor wanted the death penalty for this one. Scotland wanted the death penalty too. And all throughout his trial, he had this dumbass smile on his face and eagerly smiled for the cameras in the courtroom. When the press for uh, various news channels like Fox 45, WBAL, when they asked him if he wanted to die, he smiled and was like, why not? Scotland chose to be sentenced by a judge instead of a jury. And at his sentencing hearing, Scotland 
begged the judge for a death sentence, telling the judge that if it were him, he would want the same outcome for anybody who had been convicted of killing any of his loved ones. But at the same time, Scotland swore that he was innocent and that somebody else had committed the murder. He was like, I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, but I think I should get the death penalty. I didn't hurt anyone, but I think the death penalty should be instituted. I find this to be the most vicious crime that could ever possibly be committed. A double murder? Just think of the other spouse waiting for his bullet. Scotland actually said this to the judge, according to articles in the Baltimore Sun. I mean, still he insisted that somebody else had pulled the trigger and he just refused to snitch on him. The judge ain't have time or the patience to sort all his BS out. And in 1995, Scotland received two death sentences and a sentence of 114 years for 15 related armed robbery, burglary, theft, and handgun charges. Shortly after Scotland got his death sentences, while he sat on death row on December 6, 1995, at the Maryland Penitentiary, the prison had a fire drill that was completely random and completely and totally out of the blue. And while a correctional officer was making her rounds and trying to get everybody out, to, out you know, for the fire drill, she ordered, she came across Scotland's cell and she ordered him repeatedly to leave his cell. She noticed that he didn't move. She called him again and he didn't move an inch. When she went in his cell and pulled the covers back, like in the movies, she discovered that he had created a body lookalike to make it seem like he was still laying in the bed. Other correctional officers started looking for Scotland throughout the prison using flashlights. When they got to the activity room, the correctional officer realized that some wires were hanging and had been cut and were not working. Correctional officers continued looking for Scotland and one correctional officer, uh, she searched the barbershop where he saw a pair of feet mixed in with a pile of coats that had been hanging up on a coat rack. About two years after Scotland was sentenced to death, the Merlin Court of Appeals reviewed his case and his death sentences. The state's highest court came to the decision that prosecutors had unfairly and it, they had unfairly irrelevant evidence that made the jury biased against Scotland and that Scotland's defense was wrongly prevented from cross-examining a DNA expert and from calling a witness to testify. Because of these inconsistencies, Scotland was issued a new trial. This time, during Scotland's second trial, two inmates testified for the prosecution saying that Scotland had confessed to them that he had killed both of the attorneys. Regardless, Scotland was convicted again of the same charges and again as in his first trial. Scotland asked for the death penalty again and he chose to be sentenced by a judge, same thing like he did in the first trial instead of a jury. This time when Scotland was sentenced, the judge commented, I am consumed by doubts because the prosecution had put him at the scene, but they didn't prove that he pulled the trigger. The judge also looked into consideration a letter that the victim's families had written to him saying how much they were against the death penalty and that their strict religious beliefs about the death penalty. They felt like, 
Another death sentence would basically just open up painful wounds over and over again. So this time, Scotland received a sentence of life without the possibility for parole plus 70 years. And this time, he said absolutely nothing and showed no emotion. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The reason why this case was notorious for me personally because I met this dude before when I was a CEO down at the Maryland Penn. This was in the 90s. Um, he was a talkative exaggerator. Always laughing. And I think he carried a Bible too. But he was always laughing. Always wore like a bandana or a beanie or something over his head. He was a talkative, just exaggerator. You know, I did this. I did that. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm going to the law library. This is my case. Blah, 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 blah. Just yip, yip, yip. Talk all the time. And just was a exaggerator. Um, he pulled the trigger on these two attorneys. Bottom line. I don't know why um, there was no mysterious man that did none of this. I don't know why he couldn't face it. Um, he was a liar, 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 liar. Um, he know for a fact it was him. Where's this other person? I would have snitched. I ain't gonna lie. I'm not taking no double murder charge and, you you know, you get nothing. Why was, I mean, and the other person also made you use the ATM cards and made you specifically do all of this? Come on now. Stop lying. It was basically his attitude and that dumbass smile that he always had on his face when he was talking about this that irritated me. Like, what is so funny? He just kept smiling and smiling and smiling. I mean... I hate liars. And then he was a thief on top of that too. I mean, I don't think you should give. And then he kept begging for the death penalty. No, let your ass suffer. Just because the fact that he kept begging for it, I don't think inmates should have the option to choose whether or not they want to live or die. And especially if you keep asking for it, no, let your ass suffer. You're going to stay your ass in the cell and you're going to think about what you did. And he was on death row too at the, at the pen. He literally was only out his cell an hour a day. Deal with it. That's what jail should be like. That's what prison should be like. Because think about it. Like he said, the torture that this couple went through. You, I want the per, who did you shoot first? That's what gets me. Who did you shoot first? Because that other person had to watch that person die and knew that their time was coming. That is torture. That is torture. So it's like this was a brutal crime. And plus, you know, this, he robbed a wealthy couple. I mean, people might not think that's wealthy, but if you got two homes in Maryland, especially one is on the Severn River, okay, I'll take it. That's, that's wealthy. And he knew that he probably scoped the house out. You know, he felt like the world owed him something. He was a liar. You know, he's probably still out in North Branch. But I remember this case vividly also because of the brutality of it. And also because I remember it because the double attorneys, uh, you know, I don't know why, but um, I just remember the significance of this being like, wow, this was somebody killed two attorneys. Oh, they, they want jail, jail. So or they want prison. So that's why this one um, I selected. This is one of the most notorious robbery related murders in the state of Maryland simply from the fact of the brutality of it 
and the victims that he chose. And yep, again, um, he was black. Jose was, I believe he was of Mexican-American descent. And his wife was um, white. So this is why this was one of the most notorious murders that occurred in the state of Maryland that had a robbery motive of connection to it. Moving right on to into this episode's unsolved homicide. But before I do, let me just mention that this is not a podcast that focuses just on high profile notable homicide cases in Maryland. On this podcast, a portion will always, always be dedicated to victims where nobody knows what happened, where nobody's knows or where I should say where nobody is telling anything about what happened. And where a victim was literally here one minute and then gone the next minute. You'd be surprised at the number of people who are, you know, killed and like who are killed and the friends and family have a feeling that they know who killed their loved one. But because they can't prove it or they don't have no actual evidence, they don't know how to go about getting answers. They don't know how to go about getting justice for the victim. And they are still left with just tons of unanswered questions, unbelievable grief. And it's like the victim died all over again, especially, you know, during the holiday season. It's hard to just move on with your life like that. When you have so many unanswered questions, you're expected to just move up, pick up where you left off, hope that the detectives would do their job, and then hope that the justice system would deliver you some sort of justice that could come close to, measure up, or equal to the feeling that you experienced when you lose a loved one. It's a homicide. Getting justice in the state of Maryland don't happen a lot. And to be blunt, detectives are often kept busy with homicide cases that already have clues and evidence. But what about the homicide cases that don't have clues? What happens to all of these homicide cases? With no clues, no help, no tips. What happened to these cases? These cases are eventually labeled as cold cases. And to be honest, they are put on the back burner, so to speak. Nothing really happens until evidence falls out of the sky some kind of way. Or the detectives or somebody decides they want to look into it. To be honest. Well... I'm here to say on this podcast, every single unsolved homicide needs attention, no matter the victim, no matter the victim's lifestyle, no matter what they did or didn't do in their personal life, who in the hell are we to judge? Who are we to judge to my lifestyle when we damn sure ain't perfect, our damn selves? That way of thinking, that mentality gets me every single time. Who are we to judge and to decide if a person lives or dies? Oh, so-and-so deserved to be killed because they was out here tricking. Or so-and-so deserved to get shot because they was out here selling drugs. Or so-and-so deserved to get killed because they were shooting up. Or doing whatever. So they deserve it. Really? Last time I checked, none of y'all are named God. And no one is perfect. We all make mistakes. 
So with all that being said, the the focus for season six, we're going to focus on the women. All of the unsolved homicides that will be profiled were all women. All women who have lost their life in the state of Maryland as a result of homicide. And this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 40-year-old Michelle Anita Erdman. On November 15, 2000, around 12.30 a.m., right before a car crashed into a tree in the 1900 block of Arwell Court in Severn, Maryland, neighbors reported hearing gunshots. Inside the crashed vehicle was 40-year-old Michelle Anita Erdman, who was from the 1500 block of Matthews Town Road in Hanover. Shot in her upper body, Michelle was the only person in the car, and she wasn't dead because of no car crash. Homicide detectives later determined that Michelle had died from gunshot wounds. And that's basically all that they have in this case. All this, all this time, that's all they got. So, y'all know what's next. If you have any information at all that can lead to an arrest or conviction in this particular unsolved homicide, please call the Anne Arundel County Police Department at 410-222-4731. You can also call them the Anne Arundel County uh, Police Tip Line at 410-222-4700. You can call Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. Once again, those numbers are, you can call the Anne Arundel County Police Department at 410-222-4731. You can also call the Anne Arundel County Police Department, the tip line, at 410-222-4700. You can call Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can remain anonymous, people. There's a $10,000 reward for this case. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping, mind-boggling episodes. Also, for paid subscribers... Be sure to check out the real, the raw, the unedited truth of why I do what I do, why I got into true crime, why I started writing all the true crime books, all the real life books, all the podcasts and all of that. A lot of people think that I just woke up one day and was like, boom, I'm going to start a true crime podcast. You know, I'm going to do this, but nope, that is hardly true. There is a full-blown method to all of this madness. And this wasn't just some overnight gimmick. This, you know, apparent doing the books, uh, the appearances on TV, the Killer Kids, and, you know, the TV one. None of this is, it, this, it was, this is all part, there's a method to all of this madness. And it's not a, just an overnight, overnight gimmick or something. 
Also be sure to pay a visit to the new website, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders.com and Maryland's is spelled MDS, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders.com, where you can access episodes from all of the seasons, not just uh, season six like how we're doing now, but season one through season six, where the categories was child killers at one point, relationship murders, we had, um, uh, I guess, uh, what we're doing now, um, the robbery related murders, I, we had a season where there was sick and sadistic and pedophilia type sex related murders, you can check, you have links to all of those type of homicides at that website, um, Maryland's most notorious murders.com. And you can also find links to all of the books that are related to this podcast entitled Maryland's most notorious murders, 1990 through 2008 Maryland's unsolved homicides, volume one. Um, you can also find links to a book entitled until I get caught the true story of a serial rapist in Baltimore, which is not really homicide related, but it is a true crime story that every female should have. You can find links to my local bestsellers, uh, Child of Baltimore, which is my story, and Junkie, a true uh, Baltimore story. Um, be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome, another high profile, another high notable homicide occurring in the state of Maryland it will be examined it will be discussed and it will be profiled on Maryland's most notorious murders and this has been a Savage Life production <laughs>